Hello and uh, welcome to this first uh, talk in the uh, seminar series this term on complexity and systemic risk. Before uh, Ian Golden introduces today's speaker, who probably more than anybody else fulfills the cliche of being somebody not needing an introduction, I thought I'd just say a few very brief comments about uh, the nature of the seminar series and the idea we had in putting together this particular set of speakers. Uh, the seminar series is a joint venture between the 21st Century School, including the Institute of Science Innovation Society, which is where I am based, and the Cabden Complexity Center, which is a university-wide interdisciplinary initiative that first sh showed signs of life in, in, in 2003. And the basic idea, or one basic idea behind the seminar series is to bring together the 21st century school's interest in substantive problems and challenges that are being faced in the 21st century with the focus, with the highly interdisciplinary focus of the Cabin Complexity Center, which is interested in characterizing complex systems and networks using uh, approaches such as nonlinear <coughs> dynamics or agent-based modeling or the analysis of complex networks. And what we thought we would try to do is identify some topics of particular relevance to the 21st century school and its different centers and institutes and try to explore what the substantive contributions would be that complex systems research could make to them. And so uh, among the many different topics we will be exploring, there is the banking system and possible relations to ecological models today. There is work on cities and social systems. There is work on modeling uh, pandemic spreads, uh, and a wide range of topics. And what we've also tried to do in the seminar series is bring in uh, leading experts from, from literally across the world to provide a showcase of what the leading research on complex systems can contribute to substantive fields of interest. And so uh, we, we hope we will keep your interest through the series and that you will see not only the interest of the individual talks, but the thread that links them together. And without wanting to preempt uh, Ian's introduction, I should just say that there is no better place to start. If one wants to think about Oxford's contribution to complex systems, there cannot be conceivably a better place to start than with Robert May, whose work, of course, on the uh, stability and complexity of the ecological networks is something that many people in this room, I suspect, are very familiar with. So without further ado, because you don't want to hear me, you want to hear our speaker, I hand over to Ian for the introduction. Thanks very much, and thanks to you, Felix, for uh, convening this seminar series. It really is a very exciting one. It's great to see so many of you here, and welcome to the 21st Century School. Uh, we're aiming to put great minds together to think about the linkages between different issues uh, to try and provide new perspectives on some of the biggest challenges of our time. And clearly, complexity uh, and systemic risk provides framework for doing this in a very, very interesting and innovative way, and it's one that we haven't yet addressed, so uh, this is very timely. Uh, Baron Mayo of Oxford, what a wonderful title, uh, is really the person, as Felix has indicated, who has thought more about this and for longer uh, than many of us, perhaps us combined, Felix, uh, certainly I've thought about it very recently. Uh, over 30 years ago, he was already working in this area. Uh, as the young, one of the youngest professors ever at Sydney University. Uh, went on to have positions at Harvard and Princeton, Professor Princeton, and then the UK was extremely fortunate to attract him. Uh, he was Chief Scientific Advisor and Head of the Office of Science and Technology. He was then President of the Royal Society uh, until a few years ago. Uh, and now, uh, apart from the many, many other things he does and honors and advisory boards that he's engaged with, uh, he's been able to work uh, in really interesting ways that have preempted uh, and provided very, very significant insights for a lot of new thinking around, for example, the financial crisis, working with the Bank of England uh, and with others in this area. So it's work that is both theoretically absolutely at the cutting edge, but also uh, will, I think, have a very significant impact. Uh, if I was to begin to go through uh, Bob's CV, it would take the entire period. So, Bob, without further ado, thanks so much for agreeing to open the series for us. You're welcome. 
Good. Well, what I'm going to do um, is I've got more PowerPoint slides than I've ever had before, but I'm not going to dwell on many of them. I'm going to do three chunks of stuff. I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about how I got involved in this and some of the uh, analogies between ecological science 40 years, 50 years ago, and uh, this particular branch of economics today. Um, and I then, then, at a rapid snapshot, I'm going to talk about some of the more technical stuff, and that's where the bulk of the slides are, and I'm going to go through that, and this is for me an experiment, and it may be an experiment that doesn't work very well, to try to give you a sense of one among the many different kinds of ways you can go about trying to understand this system a bit better, but I'm not going to dwell on the details. I'm just going to give you a sense of some of the things we can do, and I should emphasize most of that will be stuff I've done with Nim Pathy, who is sitting here and who has is formally part of the is, is paid money by the 21st Century School and is a postdoc in the excellent uh, group that Angela McLean leads. And then, thirdly, I'm going to come back and spend more time talking about uh, what are some of the lessons you might draw from all of this. Well, first of all, how I got interested in this, I had. Uh, I've been, had relatively few students and postdocs, but I've been extraordinarily fortunate and perhaps helped by being a bit picky in some of the ones I've had. One of the most interesting, a chap called George Sugihara, uh, and in 1990, we wrote an interesting paper together that looked at the flip side of chaos. Chaos, tell, the chaos theory tells you simple deterministic rules that a simple little equations, nothing random in them, can under certain circumstances not only give you dynamics that looks random, but is so sensitive to it, the initial condition that a prediction is effectively impossible. You may have seen this in the program that was on BBC4 the other day. The flip side of that is it opens a new way of looking at certain kinds of series that previously you would have thought were just random fluctuation, currency exchanges, marginal rates of treasury bonds. Maybe with increasing computerized trading, to a certain extent, some of these financial stock market things may be driven in part by deterministic but chaotic dynamics, in which case it opens a new window. You still can't make long-term predictions, but you can make short-term predictions inside the so-called the Abelhoff horizon of the exponential divergence of tiny errors in the initial condition. George Sugihara got quite involved in this and ended up running Deutsche Bank Securities USA for four or five years. They brought him away from the University of California of San Diego. And after he'd made a few tens of millions of dollars or more money than he was going to need in this life as an academic, Green is not nearly as pathological as it is in certain other areas. Um, and he decided that this is all he wanted. He went uh, back. But when the National Academy of... I mean, one of the things you can do with this incident, you can take the, the random number generator that von Neumann and Milan used in the first computer that was built, Maniac, at the Institute for Advanced Study, their random number generator was essentially, although you didn't think of it that way those days, you didn't have really thought of it yet, um, was in fact a chaotic deterministic little model. And any conventional test for random numbers, so if it's generating random numbers, we could tell you the next five random numbers. And George was a natural pick when in 2006, the US National Academy of Sciences and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, presciently, in advance of this, what's happened since, put together a group to ask, with the increasing sophistication of financial instruments that were being used, were there, and if so, what were implications for the stability of the system as a whole? And to that end, they brought together some ecologists, some infectious disease people, people who worked on the electricity grid, and that's how I got involved in this. And it, does indeed, and seemed at the time, even before uh, one began to get much more interesting data about this, 
that there were certain parallels. If you go back to ecology in the 1950s, 1960s, the standard texts will talk in almost uh, mystical terms about the balance of nature. And there was a genuine feeling, and one of the prominent people who began to start thinking more analytically about a conceptual base for this, what was up to that point of descriptive science was Evelyn Hutchinson at Yale, and he felt that one of the few theorems that might be emerging was that complicated systems where more interactions among species in richer webs would be more stable in the sense of better able to resist disturbance. And the thing that drew me from physics into ecology quite accidentally um, was this, because when you looked at that, that turns out to be nonsense. If you take a community of N species and you characterize their interactions and you, in broad terms, you assume that each of the species, if it were alone, would have mechanisms that held it fairly steady, and then you let them put in interactions at random, any pair of species could interact as predator-prey, competitors, mutualists, or maybe not interact at all. You discovered that you could generalize a physics theorem about emission matrices to show that that kind of matrix with a large number of things, stable elements down the diagonal and the others randomly connected, would undergo a sharp transition from being a stable system to a very unstable system if a combination of the number of interlinkages and the square on the average strength of the interactions was bigger than one. And that redefined, in a sense, the agenda of ecology in the 70s of looking beyond that to ask what real ecosystems aren't randomly connected they're the winnowed products of evolutionary processes. They're the ones that have survived. So what, what are the structures that are there? And what might you have guessed about them? And that has been an expanding area. And there are certain general, and I'm not going to give that seminar, save only to say that if you look, and this was one of the things from the Fed study, George Sugihara commissioned a study for that of the US Fedwire system, which is not exactly, it's, it's a part of banking systems. It's the thing whereby we send money to our daughter in America. It's, it's nine and a half thousand banks that exchange uh, several trillion a day on average. When you map that web out, it turns out that 66 of the banks occur, account for about half the transactions. And it is, in fact, a very non-randomly connected thing, with a few banks connected to lots and lots and lots of little banks, and little banks connected just to one or two big banks, and very little to themselves. Which then, <coughs> when one began to think about banking systems, and other people have picked up on this too, this is just, there's a special issue of the European Physics Journal uh, last October that had a slew, slew of papers on various aspects of this, but you find this sort of phenomenon occurring in simple caricatures banking system, and it is underpinned, incidentally, by something that, to my mind, has echoes of the balance of nature, which are beliefs in general equilibrium, perfect market things like that. This is, I'm now going to give a slightly more detailed account of one of the, uh, I think, particularly interesting paper in that special issue of the European Physical Journal, um, which deals with the clever, the, the intellectual basis of the elaborate scheme that led to derivatives, 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 these very complicated packages the things that Warren Buffett didn't need mathematics but just had a, apparently either a divine inspiration or an extraordinarily fine intuition about. Arbitrage pricing theory is the thing that basically, in crude simplification, enables you to give a present value to future risks and then 
to work out in a world where subject to statistical fluctuations how you might combine things in order to produce something that is on the one hand less risky and on the other hand something on which you can, if you accept the assumptions of the theory, put some sort of price. But it makes rather heroic assumptions about the world. It assumes that there's perfect competition, market liquidity, and that there is no nonlinear interplay within the dynamics of the system. It's essentially mathematically very sophisticated stuff, but it rests on a set of assumptions that in fact have not survived confrontation with the fact that it is not dynamics free. And when you revisit this and combine it with a component that looks at the interaction between traders and fluctuations, <coughs> you discover, and I think this is a really interesting paper, and it is in a sense a much more elaborate evolution of that simple theorem about random matrices earlier, that's a much more sophisticated evolution of it that adds to the conventionality of arbitrage pricing theory to describe why what has happened might have been inherent in it. And not the least of the problems, is this is put in the words of the authors, is that unlike what a physicist or a biologist would think of a theory, namely you've got a phenomenon and you're now trying to explain it, and the theory encapsulates your ideas that you test against it. This is a theory that is based upon ideas about how markets work rather than data. And it is itself then, I mean, it is then part of the system it's supposed to be describing. And I thought that was a good uh, summary of what they found when they looked at, when they added this additional ingredient. So that was by way of giving you some background to what I think of in a sense as the evolving history of this subject. What I'm going to do now in the second part, in a way that I have, as I say, I've not done something like this before, and it may turn out that it uh, is not helpful, I want to give you a vague sense of how you might build this into more detailed descriptions of a banking site of one cartoon version of a banking system. And I should say also that there's more of this, I've forgotten. As you approach the phase transition, there are warning signs, but that's a, I'm not going to talk about that. Here is a cartoon version of a bank as a node in a network of interconnected banks. It is essentially um, the deliberately oversimplified cartoon version of a standard model used by the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And it basically says what's going on in a bank is there's money. The, the ecologist thing is pretty simple. You've got a network, the nodes of the network are species. And they're connected in that they either they're connected to other species, either they eat them, or the other species eats them, or maybe they compete. It's pretty simple. The nodes in a banking network are much more complicated. The nodes, at minimal level of complexity, have two kinds of money coming in. They're links of two kinds. Money coming in <coughs> from outside the banking system, deposits. Money coming in from borrowing within the banking system. And they're connected to other banks, not only from borrowing from them, but also they're connected to other banks by lending to them but they're also connected to an external world through their external assets. So they may be taking your deposit, lending it out on a mortgage or something, but equally for some of the games they're playing, and particularly some of the more casino-like games they're playing on betting on the future in complicated ways, they may be borrowing from other banks or lending to other banks or both. They also have to maintain a certain capital reserve to allow for the fact that fluctuations occur and you want to have some degree of flexible capital available to meet contingencies. And I'm going to call that gamma in future. You can call it capital buffer, net worth. Typically, these days, a few percent of 
total assets and total liabilities, which would be equal. And then for the oversimplified case of looking at what might happen if things go wrong, one is going to look at what happens if the bank suffers a shock, a loss of value in the external assets for one reason or another, which exceeds that capital buffer, the readily available liquid assets that it has. And indeed, one can then elaborate this caricature, cartoon, and say, the bank fails if this shock exceeds the net worth. So if the magnitude of the shock, the loss of value of external assets, if you lose, say, a fraction F of the external assets, and the external assets themselves are one minus theta of all the assets, with the remaining theta being the interbank loans, if the shock exceeds the net worth gamma, then the bank will fail. If the bank fails, it then passes on that failure through its connections to other banks. Because if it has now failed, it means that this bank that lent to it has to worry about what happens to the money it lent to it. And you can make two opposite extreme or intermediate assumptions. You could assume that if a bank fails, it just goes belly up and anyone who's lent to it, any other bank, loses the loan they gave it. More realistically, I think, you can assume that what the bank has actually lost is the difference between the hatched area and the capital reserve, and that is then partitioned among the J creditors, so that each of them loses an equal fraction of the net amount lost by the failing bank. Zero recovery is a very extreme assumption. It essentially says if the bank fails, people look at its assets and just decide this bank is so dreadful that uh, it's a sort of extreme form of liquidity crisis. The advantage of it mathematically is that that means that all the banks that lend to it lose the entirety of their loan. And if that causes them in turn to fail, because the loan, the average loan, exceeds the capital reserve, then a subsequent failure also would be assumed to have zero recovery, and there's no dilution of the shock, as it were. So it's just like spreading an infectious disease. And you can immediately take all the results of recent work on epidemiology into working out the probability and the magnitude of the uh, total number of banks failing. That was the kind of damage that could be done if you assume that the damage in the system from a single bank or institution failing is spread by defaulting on its loans. But probably more worrying is the failure of the bank means it has to sell off some of its assets. It also means that people just get worried about what the hell's going on. And this affects the nominal value of things. Mark to market means that it devalues your assets. And so it generates liquidity shocks. And whereas the interbank loan shocks only affect the banks that are directly connected to you, and of course, if it's severe enough, they can affect other banks and they can affect other banks. In contrast, the liquidity shock in the simplest of the models, if you just assume there are things called assets and they're all equally affected, which I think is far too simple. But if you do that, liquidity shocks, once they arise, affect every bank in the system. And you'll see in a moment that some of the things that we wanted to do, we've done things more sophisticated than that. And finally, there's a third sort of thing, and all three can combine. You can have the interbank shocks from people defaulting on their loans. You can have liquidity shocks through assets being devaluated mark-to-market taking them down. And you can also have shocks generated by liquidity hoarding. That is to say, a bank looks and it sees there's a lot of stress in the system, 
It knows it's got money out. Maybe it had money out lent to a bank that just went down. So it decides it'll call in all its loans, or at least it'll be much more cautious about lending. And that, of course, is what we're seeing at the moment to some degree. And that is a, can spread also in much the same way as the default shocks, defaulting on loans if everybody starts calling back their loans. And all three can come together. Um, Sujit Kapadia at the Bank of England gave a talk at the Mann Institute not long ago on some of that. I'm just going to show you very quickly some of the things that, uh, one of the things that uh, Nim and I have done. I like really simple models where I can understand what's happening. So these models, Bank of England, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, took a model like that and then take say 25 banks and let one of them fail and model just how severe things are as a function of the magnitude of the capital reserve in relation to total assets. Assuming the banks are a randomly connected net. Well, I thought if they're going to be a randomly connected net, let's do what physicists do to get a feel for things. Let's say every bank is connected to every other bank by exactly it is, every bank is connected, not on average to Z other banks. Every bank is connected to exactly Z banks. And it's interesting how much you can buy with that. So this is now a model like the thing we looked at, but all the banks have as many loans as they've got borrowings. All the loans are the same size. And so the per only parameters in it that we have really are Z, the number of loans, the net worth as a, function, as a ratio to total assets, call it one, and the ratio theta of loans to total assets, with the other assets, the external assets, being one minus theta. So if you do simulations of this, which the Fed Bank of England did, this is a simple system with five banks, you let one bank fail, you've specified that theta is 20%. 20% is in loans, 80% in external assets. One of the assets fails, and now you see, and you're propagating shocks in the simplest first case purely by defaulting on interbank loans. Well, they found as you wind down the size of the capital reserve, you come to a point where you knock down the five banks connected to the failing bank. And then a little bit later, things just get worse and worse as the capital reserve gets smaller. But if you do it in the mean field approximation on the back of an envelope, you can see, you can calculate where that ought to be. That's at the point where theta over z, the average value of a load, is bigger than gamma. And theta is 0.2 and z is essentially 5. So that's just, it's actually 4.8 because 24, I won't bother, but you can calculate this exactly. That's where the next 4.85 banks go down. And then each of them also now transmits shock, but it's being diluted each time because each time, now when one of these banks fails, it's taken a smaller shock than the one that knocked down the original bank, and it's again divided by Z in each phase as you share it among banks. But when you get to the point, there'll be a, this is the point at which probably in the third phase, there'll be a bank that's hit by three shocks from these five banks, these, each with five connections. And then there'll be another four that suffer a double shock, and then there'll be another eight that one shock will take them down if gamma's small enough, and they all go down. And in short, you can understand all this in a good deal more detail, and in particular, you can see that shocks propagating by interbank lending really get diluted in each phase. It's hard, really quite hard to keep them going. There's another interesting property which is worth noting in passing and that you can do analytically in ways that you would have to simulate until you're blue in the face to build up the picture. You can actually get an analytic result that says if gamma, the net worth, has to be less than some fraction, if F, the fraction of external, sorry, 
The first failure will occur if gamma is less than f times 1 minus theta. So we're going to plot gamma, the capital reserve, against theta, proportion of assets in loans. And if it's zero, as long as gamma is less than f, the first bank fails, and the first bank fails in that region. The next phase, where another five banks are knocked down, or Z banks are knocked down, occurs in this region, and then the next phase here. But the thing that you notice and that comes out of this is that if you want to design a system to maximize the, the likelihood of cascades of failure, you want a balanced mixture of external loans and external assets. And that's an echo of the glass steel, and I'll come back to that. If you want to go on to doing adding common exposures to external assets, um, we felt that if you want to do this, you need to do something a little bit more sophisticated than just saying there are assets and they suffer liquidity shocks. You want to recognize there are different kinds of assets. And they're going to put a shock in and see what happens. And if you're going to do that, it would make, might make sense to say there are different kinds of external assets. And let's, for simplicity as a start, assume a given bank holds external assets in n different classes, of which C of the N are also held by other banks, each of those shared things being shared by a total of G banks. So in the simplest case, suppose N and C and G are all two. Here's a bank, it's got two different kinds of assets. Each is shared among two banks, which themselves have two assets. And now let's further assume that there are something goes wrong initially with this asset in this bank. This you know, Northern Rock screws up over mortgages. So we'll now assume there is a strong liquidity shock propagated to any and all banks that share that particular asset. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong with this asset. But on the other hand, the people who hold it might look at it and they say, Crikey, these, this, this bunch of people didn't know what they were doing with that. Um, maybe we should worry that they didn't know what they were doing with that. It just hadn't been found out yet. So we put a, a weaker factor to discount this asset. And then if this bank subsequently goes down, banks that held weakly shocked things, get, they get turned into stronger shocks. And when you do that, you can run through a sequence of models, first of all, having only strong shocks. And this is like the thing we saw earlier. What's being shown here is first bank goes down. What happens next in this particular thing is that the liquidity shock takes down some more banks, but the subsequent cascade to extinction of the system is coming from interbank loan shocks. And if you picked a particular area in that, you pick this bit, you would see that the total number failing is just a few with a statistical error, and then as you began to climb, there's a lot of just fluctuations in it if you do the simulation. Now put in a bit of weak shock, and all of a sudden things get remarkably much worse, although at this part it looks much the same. The, prop, the bank, once you've got going, there are going to be depending on the statistics of the initial hits, if, if there's quite a high probability, there's, there's, sorry, there's a low probability that all the banks will go down. So there'll be a few banks that haven't yet got to a worrying, there'll be some simulations where it hasn't gone wrong yet. And then there'll be others where it's really gone wrong. And by the time you get high on the, if you put in a significant weak liquidity shock, the system basically just hits a wall here and goes from being relatively robust to a complete crash. So you can get a whole variety of different scenarios just with that cartoon cutout of differentiated liquidity shocks. There's a big contrast. The liquidity shocks amplify as more banks fail. 
The interbank loan shocks tend to attenuate the small banks. Now, all of that is far too simple. All the simulations, essentially all the simulations that have been done so far are for networks of randomly connected banks, which is why you can get so much <coughs> intuitive understanding by doing mean field approximations. But we know from the Fedwire study, and there's into the more recent study of the Austrian banking system that finds just the same pattern, George Sugihara and I have been unable to persuade the Fed to let us have or to redo the Fedwire theme today to see if it's different from how it was in 2005. And maybe they'll let us have it when everything's settled down again. Um, but what we do know is that a system in which there are very, there are some banks that are sort of super spreaders, in the words of the infectious disease literature, that are connected to lots of other banks. When you put in, if you look at the statistics of what's the probability that a given bank is connected to X other banks, the degree distribution, if you look at things that aren't random, clustered around some average, but are long-tailed, a few banks, that many, many loans, things are likely to be different. And there's a lot of work on that. But coming back to infectious disease, Possibly even more important, and I'm not aware of anything yet in the banking literature that looks at this, it's not only a matter of what's the degree distribution of the network, it's also a matter of, given the degree distribution, that some banks have got many more connections than other banks, it's also a matter of who they're connected to. And one extreme assumption would be that the super spreader banks this particular curve is from a paper on HIV-AIDS in the late 80s, pointing out that it's not enough to know the number of partners people had. You'd like to know what were the number of partners that the partners that they had had. Because one extreme is assortative connections, assortative mating in the case of uh, sexual partners, where the very active people, the people with lots of partners, are by and large interacting with other people with lots of partners. Whereas the, as it were, shy people are interacting with the shy people. That way, you get the epidemic starting earliest, but it tends to do itself in as the super spreaders all connect, and, and then in the early days of HIV, they die. Conversely, the opposite extreme of disassortative is the hyperactive, well, make them banks again now, uh, connected to the tiny banks differentially and the tiny banks to the big banks. It's the exact opposite of assortative. And in the middle is they're just connected at random in proportion to the number of links they have. That's something that also deserves exploration because if the Fed wire and the Austrian study is representative of more general things, which it quite likely is, um, it's disassortative that is more likely to be characteristic. And that is interesting if true, because there's a growing amount of work in ecology that suggests that real food webs, it is both theoretically correct that a degree of compartmentalization is helpful, but it also seems to be factually the case. But it's by no means complete because there is also, in certain ecosystems, plant pollinators are one of them, a distinct tendency to have disassortative connections. With some of the species being connected to lots of other species. The straight disassortative thing like the fedwire. Another kind of complication is looking simply not at banks of the same size, but big and small banks, and asking questions like these. And what one would ideally like to do, and in my view, one would ideally like to do it by going in logical steps so that you've understood the simplest cartoon cutout model before you go on to do a great big simulation. You can, after all, with computing power today, put in everything but the kitchen sink, but then you end up and 
little better off than reading the entrails of a sheep <laughs> as to what caused what. But eventually one wants to have banks of different size, realistic, um, non-random degree distributions, better understanding of whether they're assortative or disassortative or random or proportional. And then you can ask questions like, what will maximize the robustness of the system in respect to the connection between capital, the size of capital reserves and the size of the bank? Is it the big banks, as some tentative indications suggest, are, like, are they like super spreaders? Are they the people you should focus on as, I mean, there's a quite powerful theorem that was discovered first in infectious diseases, and then independently, quite independently, by Barabasi and Albert in, uh, for um, com uh, the web and uh, the internet, that says, if you've got a complex web with a non-random degree distribution, then if you attack it at random, it's more robust, it's harder to do serious damage than it would be compare a randomly connected web with a very long tail degree distribution web, super spreaders and little connected things. If you attack both of those at random, the, ra the one that is the inhomogeneous degree distribution is more robust. But if you deliberately target the hyperactive nodes, it is much easier to bring down the web that is more like the real web. And that was discovered sort of by simulation by Barabasi and so on, but it had been established as an interesting little theorem in infectious disease literature about 15 years earlier. And it probably is true of banks too. And then also we need to get a much better handle on what is clearly an important part of the problem of liquidity boarding. Now I'm going to come back, this is now at the last part of the talk, and uh, it should have been 45 minutes, so I'm going to go 10 minutes over time. Um, I'm now going to turn to some facts and some tentative conclusions, and first I'm going to begin with a paradox which has been independently noted by several different people in different ways, and the paradox is this, and it has echoes, and uh, to quote the... Uh, the review, very excellent review that uh, Ian Golden and uh, Tiffany Vogel have just written. Um, it, in fact, now I can't find the quote. Uh, he said, a contemporary manifestation of Harden's tragedy of the commons. Um, and it's this. Diversification of assets can be good for each individual bank and yet bad for the system as a whole. And here's a simple example that just to fix that idea. Suppose you've got N banks, little n different kinds of asset, each of which has some probability P of losing a sufficiently large amount of its value that a bank that held only that asset would, as a result of that probability occurring, fail. It's an argument due to Nicholas Beale, whom some of you may know, who runs an independent financial thing called SkyTip. Well, consider the two extremes. First, suppose we've got N banks, five classes of asset, and each bank holds its own unique asset. The chance any one bank fails is obviously P. The chance the whole system fails is much, 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 much smaller. It's P to the fifth. Now let's assume that each bank on the opposite extreme holds one-fifth of each of the assets. So the banks are all identical. Well. Again, it's a bit moot what, how, what big that number is. It depends on what you assume are the probability distribu distribution of P. But basically, independent of the details of the probability distribution that gave you the probability P of a single bank holding a single asset failing, this now scales as P to the fifth times some number that's bigger and possibly quite a bit bigger than one, but is a hell of a lot less than P. So each bank is... That, that's just assuming the simplest 
case of uniform distribution, it would be 26. That's a factorial, that's 5 to the 5th over factorial 5. But whatever it is, the chance of the whole system's failing is identical because all the banks are identical. So there's a very simple example that the probability that any one bank failing is now much less, but the probability of the whole system coming down is much more. Now you may say, well, if only the banks understood that, they wouldn't want to do it. Well, the hell they would. That's another reason to want to do it. Because if, if your chance of going down means only you go down, then it's quite likely people will say, well, tough luck. But if the chance of you going down means the whole system comes down, you don't have to worry about it. It's not your problem, it's the government's problem. <laughs> so there actually are unavoidable tensions, and that's a point worth noting. I just want to mention this recent thing, a very recent, still work in progress that Joe Stiglitz, who, who was our neighbour in Princeton, has done, which is another, uh, has points of, sim of similarity with this, and that's a quote from his paper, I put in the good and the bad, the financial market integration increases diversification possibilities, and it's clear in the paper that's good, but it may increase the risk of system failure. It's quite clear that's bad. And he has, does that with rather different nice, simple models. And he picks up the National Academy of Sciences Fed study decided actually you didn't learn much from the electricity grid because people understood it too well. So it's not like banking because you really you've designed a grid. <coughs> you've got all the control leaders, circuit breakers and stuff. Nonetheless, quite independent, uh, Joe hit on this idea of Putting, he, he was discussing it, because he's so much a development economist, of putting the circuit breakers between nation states. Some of the, one of the criticisms on it is that uh, this now has political implications which are perhaps unhappy, but it's, a, it's, an insta an, it's another instance of ideas never come from one place. I'm now going to show you just four slides en route to the conclusions that are out of a paper that Andy Haldane, who's the, uh, the uh, head of systemic risk in the Bank of England, rather nicely entitled Bank on the State. And this slide speaks to the point I've just made. What it shows is that over the span, 1998 to 2009, the dark blue line, what it's actually showing is big banks tended to become more homogeneous. They tended to go more in the direction of homogeneity. And hedge funds, by contrast, tended to go more in the direction of specialization. Now that's a fact you can read into that. But it is interesting that the crisis is being driven by big banks by and large, head funds are okay. So maybe, insofar as there is any data on this, and maybe that's some. More generally, just to define the dimension of the crisis, this is going from 1880 through 1940 to 2006. This is an estimate of the asset side of UK banks, value added up over all banks as a ratio to UK GDP. Well, you say, how can the banks be hundreds of, a couple of hundred percent of GDP? Well, remember, each bank has its assets sheet, its liability sheet, and they <laughs> approximation add to zero, so that's okay. If you just took the asset sheets and added them all up, until quite recently, they were somewhere around a third, or they added up to a third or a half of GDP. With the invention of these complicated instruments, based on this wacky theory, or sorry, this wacky religious belief about the conflict, people started taking more and more risks, and not doing too badly over most of the time. And by this time, they've climbed in, this would suggest to something like six times overall GDP. 
I have a series of quotes I want to read out here. This point two. Here's another thing. This is returns on equity for UK banks starting in 1921, coming through 1970, coming up to today. And you see, the, the step change actually goes back a bit further than we recognise, but the returns have moved much higher, but they've been characterised as they did so with much bigger fluctuations. And part of this, and this is connected to the one two slides back as to how this value has climbed so much, if you ask about what is the leverage ratio? The amount of money that's out there in the assets is relation to the amount of money actually held in sense roughly liquid. What's been the pattern over recent years and what's the fraction of the total assets that are out there as it were in the casino? And that has been climbing. So Andy Haldane summarised this by saying, what actors, let me just cut some of this stuff out. Let me turn just to conclusions, and I'm quoting, in Banking on the State, Haldane concludes with two different segments. One, on ways in which you might try to redesign the financial system to be more robust. And secondly, thinking more carefully about how you design safety nets if indeed it fails. How you ensure liquidity, or how you ensure deposits, or how you ensure capital. I'm not going to talk about B. I'm just going to address some tentative conclusions that I think comes out of a. So under the subheading of redesigning the financial system, Haldane considered leverage limits, the sort of thing we just saw making it not possible to be in such great leverage, recalibrating, looking more carefully at how you evaluate risks, and that involves, subsumes in my mind, arbitrage pricing theory, rethinking capital structure, putting restrictions on the ratio of how low you can drive capital reserves, and more generally, uh, other things in the way banking is, is organised. So I'll begin with the first. I re-emphasise re the point I made a moment ago. There can be genuine tensions between the stability of individual banks and that of the system which means that individual banks' resistance to some of these regulatory changes may make perfect sense from their point of view, while at the same time making, not making sense from the point of view of the wider community. And that is not part of the discussion as yet, and I think it, it really ought to be. The interbank lending network, we saw, remember that earlier slide, and I, in passing, mentioned Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was something put in place in the United States in 1933, and it was something that, in effect, based on intuitive feelings about things from the Great Crash, said banks can be the retail banks, they can be high street banks as well, or they can be investment banks, they can be casino banks, but they can't be both to a significant degree. Under the loosening up of everything, uh, that was repealed some time ago, and opinions differ as to whether it really would be a good idea thinking of having a somewhat more of the restriction of banks doing all sorts of different things, and I think it is helpful to observe that, at least in some oversimplified sense, you maximise the chance of entering the zone of instability by indeed having banks that are doing many different things. Liquidity shocks, as we said, seen in many of the models to be the things that most easily propagate 
failures, they can arise from the failure of a particular asset, thus fire sales and mark-to-market consequences, but more generally just from a loss of confidence in the whole thing. And we don't have very good machinery for discussing and quantifying loss of confidence. And it's almost not present in most of the conventional models. And yet I think a textured treatment of liquidity shocks really does need to do that. And the thing most important in that context, if your external assets have been put, had the rating put upon them by credit rating agencies, using arbitrage pricing theory, which doesn't easily fit anyhow to the complexity of bundles of bundles of bundles. It's very likely that the value bears that's put upon them for initial regulatory purposes is about as reliable as the value in any common sense terms put upon a black tulip. And so, one of the particular aspects of this is trying to have a more sensible assessment of what is the value of something that's being traded. And it's compounded <coughs> by the fact that credit ratings agencies are in the business of being paid, employed, to rate your product. And credit ratings agencies that consistently underprice it more realistically compared to people who tell you it's AAA, are not going to stick around because no one's going to hire them. So there's a, a fascinating game theoretic aspect of that. And there's also an interesting paper on that by Joe Stiglitz. And in this context, again, there's a great quote in the, uh, in the uh, review paper that uh, Vogel and uh, Golden wrote, said, when the interconnections are dense, it may be difficult, this is somebody else's paper, local Jarvis, to trace the impact of any change even after the fact, let alone predict it ahead of time, making the system complex and hard to control. Well, I'd say it goes back one step to making it very hard to evaluate. Haldane also considers capital reserves, and again here there's a tension. Large capital <coughs> reserves, as we saw from some of those earlier slides, it's harder to do damage to the system if the capital reserves are bigger. Greater robustness to individual banks, greater robustness to the system as a whole. But on the other hand, large capital reserves mean working capital lying idle. What has tended to happen, what has tended to happen in recent years is that as opportunities seem that life seemed to be good, it was all boom, you didn't want capital lying idle. So in this boom time, capital reserves shrank. But arguably, and both Adair Turn, the head of the FSA, and also Stephen uh, Green, the uh, head of HSBC, which is one of the banks that's done somewhat better than many of the others, partly because of its more conservative Asian origins in a way, uh, suggested that maybe there ought to be something that says in boom times, capital reserves are going to be bigger, in bus times, capital reserves can be run down to free up lending. And there may also be a case for saying big banks, which can be super spreaders, ought to have relatively bigger capital reserves. Whereas again, the tendency, it's not a strong tendency, but it's a documentable tendency, is bigger banks tend to have relatively smaller capital reserves. And that's, I think, my last slide. I don't have to read that for you. I assume everybody can read. And I thought that Haldane also writes, in my opinion, very nicely. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, another quote on this that uh, I was looking for. Yes, he said it's... It, with respect to leverage, it's important too that leverage limits are set at the right level. Such levels limits need to be fundamentally re-evaluated. We've sleepwalked into a world in which leverage of 20 or 30 times capital is the rule rather than the exception. Now is a good time to wake up. <laughs> like one last quote, I really like this. 
um, rethinking capital structures, he says, um, in the early days of banking, liability was not just unlimited, it was often as much personal as financial. In 1360, a Barcelona banker was executed in front of his failed bank, presumably as a way of discouraging generations of future bankers from excessive risk-taking. It has not been conspicuously successful. <laughs> and then he goes on to outline two alternative approaches of adapting, this is the reconfiguring the system, of adapting capital structure in ways which alter the balance of risk-taking incentives without jeopardizing the flow of risk capital. They both involve operating on equity, not on equity, but on debt. They involve making debt like equity a more loss-absorbing instrument in stressful events. So there are a lot of ideas floating around, and what I've tried to do, and I've no idea really how successful, but I'm about to learn, um, I've been in trying to give a sense of why there are a lot of new players in this game, many of whom can arguably claim to understand elements of it better than the sophisticated practitioners of the game, who are handicapped by their religious education in Economics 101. And then in the middle I tried to give a little bit of verisimilitude to an otherwise bald and unconvincing narrative in the words of Mercado. And at the end I tried to give a sense of the sort of things that are being thought about help, but certainly not apodictically guided by these somewhat cartoonish models, but at the same time trying to show how the cartoonish models, I think, can eliminate some of the questions better than just doing something that has everything in it, but where you can't understand what bits of it did what things.